So welcome to this episode of Truth and Fiction. Uh, we're back after a little bit of a break there. Things have been chaotic with me, but I'm here today with my good friend, Catherine Schusler, who is fresh back from some edumacation overseas. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about one of our favorite books here, especially one of her favorites, longtime um Longtime favorite of hers, Les Miserables. That's right. And I was hoping, Catherine, that you would give us a real quick plot summary. Definitely, yeah. Well, and first I'll take the opportunity. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I'm glad you could and join us. And it's fun to, yeah, connect uh, this way after a long hiatus. I've been, yeah, overseas and we met in high school and it's been a long time. Yep. We're, we're old now. <laughs> right. Yes. Old and sophisticated, I'm told. Oh, wow. Yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, Les Mis is definitely one of my top 10 favorite books and it was the first book to probably change my life. Okay. So I'm, that's high praise for someone who I know reads a lot. Yes. And it's, um, not too, I can't say that of too many books, uh, certainly of fiction. Um, just because you like something doesn't mean it's life changing. Right. But I mean that sincerely with Les Mis. Um, but There's yeah. some pretty profound themes in this one that are... I mean, that go to the core of what it means to be human, but also yeah. what it means to be a good person. I mean, so much exploration of ethics in this book, uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get it on this podcast. Definitely. We spend a lot of time talking about ethics. Yeah. And there's there's kind of a clash of ethics um, from some of our main characters, both really trying to live profoundly ethical lives. It's such a fun dynamic of this one where we've got both the hero and the antagonist uh, sort of working out their ethical frameworks. There's a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll answer your question now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's is, get uh, that uh, quick plot summary for those of you who haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Um, the movie's pretty closely, especially the more recent one, pretty closely track at least the plot of the novel. So if you haven't read it and it's a bit of a slog, um, Catherine refuses to let me recommend the abridged version. <laughs> I can go on that if you'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, if you can't get through the books, the movies cover the plot fairly well, fairly well and they capture the main characters fairly well. So you can at least follow along and you'll get something out of our conversation, I think, even if you haven't gotten through the book. Absolutely. Um, BBC recently did a multi-series and I've oh, not really? seen it um, and I've not followed along with... Um, how much people like it or not, but I know that Andrew like a TV Davies series. Of yeah, the it was of a mini mini series. Oh, okay. uh, so like probably hour to hour and a half um, long episodes, and I don't know how many they did, but they covered the story. Oh, and, really? Okay, I'll have to check that uh, out. I Andrew Davies is quite famous for. Um, writing some of the really good BBC dramas that mm. people enjoy. Okay, um, cool. But probably the people will be familiar with the, um, was it 2012 that the Hugh Jackman yeah, film Hugh Jackman. of the play came out because they oh, were doing right. the play and, it was and the musical. singing. Yes, yeah. they were doing the musical. And the musical is a work of genius given how big Les Mis is and yeah. how complicated it is. It's a lot. They really shrunk it down. They did. I, I'm partial to the uh, Liam Neeson version myself. Oh, are you? Yes. I don't, and I have to say, I'm not sure I've seen that it's all the way through. Time. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, I do know that they do some pretty big departures, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. I'll finally get to the plot. Yeah. What's the now. quick plot? Yeah. And uh, so off the cuff, it's not possible to probably fully um, summarize the book. But as you've said already, there are a couple of main characters that track over an almost 20-year period. Right. Uh, it starts in 1815. And uh, apart from the first 80 pages being about the the bishop that is, has <laughs> a small but important part in the yep. story, um, you kick off with uh, the convict Jean Valjean, the uh, policeman Javert 
And then a little bit later on, a character that does play import throughout the novel is, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but uh, Thenandier. Um, he's the villain, villain that Cosette is initially raised with. He's the one that keeps showing up in inconvenient places and also convenient places um, within the story. I will equally forget that name because I think when I was listening to it on Audible, it was pronounced very differently. Yeah. And, and I cannot even remember what that was actually <laughs> pronounced as. I'm embarrassed I'm to admit. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to admit that um, I, I sometimes get my uh, French pronunciation well and other times I don't. Oh, so. the French and their pronunciations. Oh. Unforgiving. <laughs> But um, yeah, so we've got Jean Valjean, who is a convict um, and has been on the on the chain, uh, the gang, um, chain gang, chain gang yes. for quite a while. And um, he's finally given parole. And right. I think he was originally convicted for something fairly minor. Right. He exactly. had stolen some food when he was starving, that kind of thing. He, he stole some bread and it was for his sister and their oh, family, right. too. For him. Right. Yeah. And he the tragedy, he he loses touch with them. He even forgets their names, I believe, in right. the story. And mm-hmm. um, that's part of his 14 the added years, tragedy. Right. Yeah. In, in, um, in and the, the hardening that that hard labor does. Right. But uh, the story tracks over Jean Valjean's life and also Javert hounding him throughout his life because he is um, someone who goes out on parole and then um, doesn't really come back. Right. And... um, Well, he makes a couple of daring escapes, I think, from... uh, In in his final... this finally getting out involved him actually escaping sort of presumed dead uh, in this incident at a docks where he was doing some hard labor. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah. so he gets convicted, he gets out, Javert happens to know him, and Javert is a particularly, um, shall we say, dutiful police officer. He's he's uh, goes above and beyond in the line of justice, but his idea of justice is... Uh, people serving the utmost of their sentence according to the crime that they permitted uh, committed by the law, very much letter mm-hmm. of the law, uh, sort of following dude. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very por- important to his character. Uh, right. Uh, described by Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo, the, uh, <laughs> the author of the book. Um, uh, yeah. So Victor Hugo is um, the author of the book and he, um, he makes that a really important feature of Javert's character that we'll probably discuss farther into our conversation. But, Definitely. Um, this is what drives Javert's hounding of um, the many pseudonyms and lives that right. Valjean uh, Jean Valjean ends through. up taking. And um, so he becomes the, uh, he adopts a pseudonym. He, he creates a new life for himself. He becomes the mayor of a city and becomes quite successful. And right. this is how his path crosses with Fontaine, uh, Cosette's mother. So there's a, the two uh, main female protagonists of the novel. Fontaine is probably the most tragic character I've ever read in <laughs> literature. And yeah. that, her story is pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, Not super critical to the plot, but it's there's this um sorry i'm gonna interrupt you just a second here no it's okay it's yeah. worth setting the 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 groundwork that um hugo is exploring through this novel the the justice system essentially of of france mm-hmm. and and kind of the underpinnings of the justice system so not just uh, okay is our justice system just but really where does 
where do people fall through the cracks? Where does the justice system go too far? Mm-hmm. Um, can it? What does it take to actually sort of redeem uh, an individual who has sinned uh, and sort of bring them back into into society in a way that is acceptable to everybody? Uh, can that be done? You know, is it even possible? Uh, it's uh, in many ways, it's it's a it's a criticism of the justice systems because there's yep. he's exploring the extremes in, in a lot of cases. So with Fontaine, for example, um, she crosses paths with uh, Jean Valjean, who she sort of unwittingly, unknowingly is slighted by him and kind of decides to hate him by some uh, sort of an unhappy accident where where she is not exactly framed. But anyway, she's sort of blamed for her own downfall and she ends up having this child out of wedlock, um, yep. really at the fault of the man there in, in the picture who, who, you know, up and left her out of nowhere. Um, and anyway, in the midst of her struggles, she loses her job at the factory that Jean Valjean is running exactly. super successfully. Yeah. And so she kind of hates him for that, even though what didn't he didn't have anything to do with it. And sort of in her last moments of life, she uh, appeals to him in person and she's in a miserable state by then. Her, her health is totally gone. Um, and she sort of appeals to him to to do something about his, her daughter, who she has yeah, in adver- well, in the process, she's left with this innkeeper, yes. assuming that, she, that you know the innkeeper is going to do better for her daughter, Cosette. Um, and of course, the innkeeper is this scummy individual, Thénardier, who uh, we find out briefly before is sort of a, a looter on the battlefield, and he's running this in. So kind of comes full circle there. But anyway, the innkeeper is now taking care of Cosette. The innkeeper milks her for all of her money, or milks Fontaine for all of her money. Um, and in the process just causes Fontaine to be destitute. Um, Jean Valjean finally catches wind of this. That's what's going on. He feels terrible about it and sort of decides that no matter what happens, he's going to take care of Cosette. And he he really adopts her as his own daughter right at the same time as uh, Javert catches wind of him in this town. And so right about the time he's adopting Cosette, he is forced out of the situation into the unknown and kind of has to go underground again and reinvent himself again. Uh, but at this point, he at least has some money because he was a successful business person for a little while. So he's sort of um, presenting himself as this noble person as he moves into Paris. That's right. Yeah. That's a great way to summarize how we gain and lose a character and gain a couple more. Right. And um, yeah. And this is another plug to read the book because <laughs> the details come out and matter. And the way that Hugo um, weaves everything together is right. so ingenious. And it's pretty amazing how um, that keeps happening. Yes. And that does, of course, get lost, as with most uh, movie adaptations. Um, yeah. You lose a little bit of the not only just the inner dialogue, but how the, these connections um are brought about um, right. in all of the complexity. Because he does it really slowly and, and gently. Yes. Um, with much and many long interludes of less relevant information. <laughs> Debatable, yes. <laughs> but yes. Right, um, right. It's worth saying, too, um, that it's it's over a 1,000 pages. Yes. For the, anybody who novel. doesn't know um, right. that it is... Um, well, and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be so tough if, if more of it was related to like the actions going on. So, so much of this novel feels like political commentary. Yes. Like, and not just 
sort of pseudo-political commentary um, where he's commenting on the politics by the actions of the characters as they're going through their story. No, he's like very explicit political commentary. I mean, he spends a substantial amount of time breaking down how the Battle of Waterloo took place, for example. Not really relevant to anything, but uh, I'm sure it was really interesting for the uh, Parisian of the day and slightly less so for those of us ignorant Westerners like myself. (laughs) But all that being said, the plot continues. (laughs) Uh, It does. And um, quite a few, it goes from Fantine, or sorry, uh, Cosette being a child to um, her becoming a young woman. Yeah, and that transition happens in a nunnery. Yes, exactly. And it explains where she gets some of her education and how they can kind of reinvent themselves again because Javert is ever uh, insistent on finding. He has a long-lived memory and he won't just let anybody go because he believes so strongly in the justice system that exists that uh, he's uh, duty-driven and duty-bound and he believes that the the letter of the law uh, is all that matters and right. that it is fully just the ultimate ideal and he believes in the social um, aspects that come along with this so being a convict means that you are forever scum right effectively right and um, and he is an upstanding citizen and this this hierarchy must be maintained he believes right and the uh, this actually even gets into um, f- not to go backwards but Fontaine's downfall. Um, her word is not believed against the man that fled because he, I think he was an aristocrat or something well, of that level. Well, she was abused by someone in the street. Some guy, random guy, like kicked snow at her. Yes. And, and, and this is where Javert comes rude. in. Right. And, and he, who does he believe? Right. The scumbag that threw right. snow at her mm-hmm. or uh, or her? Yeah, because I think at that point she was a prostitute. So yeah. she was yeah. you know, selling herself and she was like in the open abused by someone yeah. and you know, the guy gets away with it and yeah. Javert believes him because, yep. because he's, he's the one who's not breaking the law. Well, and he's uh, an upstanding citizen. He's a right. gentleman is a key word. Um, right. And she's not. She's a prostitute. So clearly right. she's always at fault mm-hmm. and he's the, the gentleman can do no wrong. So it's this kind of system that mm-hmm. Um, um, Javert um, believes yeah, in right. fully. It's kind of the, He's the a very consistent. of the uh, extreme justice oriented person is exposed in his character because of his extreme take on it. Yeah. And he believes that once you've hit a certain low in your life, you can't reinvent yourself. He does not believe in grace uh, no. or mercy. He doesn't understand this. No, transformation is not something that he really believes in at all. Not and at all. he doesn't transform as a person. He is a incredibly consistent character yes um, probably to a, a degree that we don't honestly see very often well, in it's real probably life. not i mean he's a i think he's a little bit exaggerated for the sake of this for the sake of the story yeah not that there aren't people who are similarly as stubborn but uh there are some things that melt even the hardest hearts in my experience <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, that I don't have the um, the line bookmarked, but there is a line that says almost exactly what you just said of Javert, where right. it says, the scene before him was so tragic, it could have melted a heart of stone, right. but Javert had a heart of wood. <laughs> and I was like, wow, when I read that, that just, um, it, it's so simple, and uh, this language even, but it's profound. It just, it hits you. Um, yeah, right. And what's... Well, 
the thing that we have to hold on to just both for the plot, but also for the sake of the characters is remembering that um, Javert really is living out his ideal. Like there's a morality and an ethic there that he is expressing that he lives uh, entirely consistently. Like he is not a man of hypocrisy at all. And I appreciate when we've got a you know an antagonist who really isn't hypocritical because that's something that is easy to poke holes in. That's something people recognize pretty easily. Um, but here we and Hugo does a good job sort of poking holes in in the ethics of the society as a whole through Javert because he is sort of embodying the the highest moral ethic you can have as a purely law abiding citizen. And yeah. the French have this beautiful tradition of overthrowing their governmental systems periodically uh, at rather extreme fashion, especially historically. I mean, they go through quite a few governments very quickly um, at various times in their history. And so I, I, I think Hugo is aware of that sentiment and, and he's perhaps trying to stir up more of those sort of revolutionary feelings um, for the sake of, hey, we need to actually look out for the oppressed here because if we really follow the letter of the law, uh, people are abused in ways that are inhumane. And that was that was one of the bigger surprises to me actually in this story, mm. uh, reading through it, is just how similarly the American justice system uh, sort of tracks with this. And we're a little bit less extreme in some ways, but in other ways, we're more extreme. I mean, we really do tend to ostracize and put away criminals for relatively minor things or things that may or may not be their fault. Now, our, our actual court system, I believe, is probably way more... It, we're going to give a, a better chance to those uh, on trial because of the, the jury of the peers and how that works. But at the same time, when someone goes to court for a felony, their, their life is ruined and they really are stuck and they're outside of many systems at that point with, with almost no recourse, so no way to get back in, whether they are rehabilitated or not. And that's yeah, it's something I hadn't questioned until more recently. You know, it's just kind of, if I'm not a lawbreaker, then it's like, what do I have to worry about it? But actually those, there's a huge number of people who fall into that, who now are, not only are they outside the law or outside of normal society, they're actively hindered in, in reintegrating in many ways. And that's a that's an injustice in itself. Like that's a pretty a pretty brutal reality for for those folks. You know yeah. whether they deserve it or not is part of what this story is exploring, mm-hmm. um, and the possibility. Yeah, and and what would it take to bring them bring them back is is another one of those things. Yes, uh, but let's finish up the plot here and yeah. get into some of that. We definitely yeah. yeah. Um, I digress. Well, but and I agree with you that. Uh, that Lemez is very relevant. It's it's both a timeless book and uh, meaning it can be extremely relevant to art today and really surprising ways. And also, it was such a modern book of its time. Right. And Hugo did live through a lot of what he ends up writing about. And that's another uh, sidebar. But uh, yes, it's amazing how much we're learning about justice just through walking with these characters. Another reason to go through each of those pages. Um, but yeah, Cosette grows up to be a, um, an accomplished, beautiful young woman um, living with the nuns. And so she's got a purity and an innocence about her too, um, having kind of been secluded away from the world, but still getting an education with this nun. Uh, this nunnery and um and Jean Valjean's always nearby and I don't remember I have to confess what pseudonym he was going by at that point um but 
regardless. They are able to leave and start a new life in Paris. And this is where Marius really becomes a more important and introduced character. And the, so we could say that Les Miserables is cut in two. You've got the the first part, it's really tracking with these three main characters that we've named of Jean Valjean and, and Javert and uh, Thiandier. <laughs> we're probably going to <laughs> yeah. say it differently. Yep each time right because you've read it and i heard it so <laughs> exactly yep. exactly um and then you've got the youth that have now grown up and right. we've got cosette and marius who become very important characters for the remainder and we still got our three other characters tracking along but it's um marius's journey and um the love story that forms between um marius and cosette as well that gets you to eventually the end of the book and of course we have the barricades right that most that are, have an idea of what Les Mis is about would probably be familiar with yeah and some it's argue featured is featured prominently the, in the um in the play and in the the more recent movie yes. especially yeah and it's um some call it the climax Les Mis is too big to have just one climax in my opinion right and that is climactic but um I, through conversation with other friends too, I've found that we care less about the barricades as much as we care. Mm -hmm. And we care more about some of the um, events that happen to the characters, especially Jean Valjean. I'm going to pause to criticize the um, uh, Hugo's development of the love story here Mm. for a minute, because while it is, I mean, I feel on one level, he captures that sense of love at first sight really well Mm. um, for those who have experienced that, which I know is a reasonably common experience. Um, My wife (laughs) will profess to have had an experience like that. Uh, It seems a bit foreign to me, but it's silly in my mind how like how long that's essentially all they have are just these glances back and forth. I mean, it would make for the worst movie to try and really portray it, how it's described, but it's it's very entertaining. I mean, it was it was entertaining reading. Yeah, even though slow, though, it may be. Uh, but that was it. Like their entire love story is based off these like covert glances. And there's this pulling away of Cosette from Valjean, who is her, you know, beloved father figure who she's very attached to. Um, and cause he's like the first kind person she ever really meets out after leaving, after her mom leaves her who, uh, with these horrible Thénardier people. Um, so they have this great bond, but she's trying to become her own person, trying to become an adult. And it's this really sad tearing of that relationship that has to happen. Um, and it's Valjean ultimately voluntarily giving up his control bit by bit uh, while his own heart is broken in the process, but like willingly doing that um, while you know, Marius is pining over Cassette as his uh, idealistic bachelor life progresses. With with no money or prospects, but all all of the hope in the world. <laughs> oh yes, so good. He's such a classic bohemian bachelor and student and right. idealist and oh through yeah. and through. Yeah. Yep. Um, but he does have an interesting journey too, from his, his certain idealisms into uh, the harsh realities of life and death and right. the consequences that come from standing up for your beliefs, even if they are just right. Um, but I do want to comment um, in reciprocation on uh, the love story. And I I can sympathize. I will say I, I did enjoy it, 
but it was because I thought he pulled it off in a, in a believable way. I, I haven't experienced it. I'm happy to say I've not experienced the love at first sight. Right. Um, but I loved their courtship. I loved the way that um, Marius um, held her in high esteem. It's There's just no lust about it. It's a reverence that's quite beautiful. And it's yeah. all, so if we can't believe in it, it's something you kind of want to believe in. But that gets that's us into a, a whole discussion on... Um, what what to believe about love and what's real and what's um if it's uh, justified let's say to believe in the ideals that we secretly know don't exist that's a whole nother fun philosophical conversation we yeah. don't need to have yeah love there's a there's a whole world of uh things to talk about there um but yeah and I think Lemez is a story about love. It's it's a story about so. mercy and different types of love. But yeah. uh, love and mercy are quite uh, closely related. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lemez is certainly a book about mercy. And then you have these different types of loves. And you've mentioned already the love between uh, Jean Valjean and Cosette, the father daughter relationship. And it's even more perhaps even more profound that it's an adopted relationship, but that doesn't matter. Like they right. love each other. Yeah. They all, they, they are all they have for a long time. Yeah. You know, and there's a, and there's a really beautiful, uh, purity and, uh, self-sacrificing intensity and devotion there that they both experience, um, throughout, throughout their story. Uh, and, you know, Cassette's self-sacrifice doesn't become as obvious until she's realizing how much she's willing to give up for his sake, for his, for Valjean's sake, because she will abandon this person that she's loved for the sake of, uh, you know, preserving the relationship with her father as much as she wants it, you know. So there's there's some fun dynamics there for sure. But let's oh, yeah. wrap up the plot here because we're <laughs> you know half an hour into this and <laughs> it's, it's, gone through it, it speaks to the testament of how interesting and how long the book right. is. Um, well. I guess uh, I guess I can give away the ending. Yeah, can give I? away the ending, oh. and then we'll we'll jump back in and uh, start again at the beginning. Okay. Well, um, Javert does not live to see the end of the book. Um, it is an act of mercy towards himself um, enacted by Jean Valjean that undoes his straight line, hardcore belief system to a point that. Um, undoes Javert and he commits suicide. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to take it one step back to mm. very briefly summarize the events that lead to that moment because okay. that is like the pinnacle moment of the defeating of the enemy of in some sense, but yes. uh basically Marius is in love with Cosette. He gets entangled with this um, barricades situation and is pretty much doomed to die because all of the rebels are just getting crushed. Um, But Valjean jumps in there, kind of peers out of nowhere, uh, ends up saving Marius's life by uh, by dragging him into the sewers. Uh, there's a long digression about the <laughs> history of the French sewer system. <laughs> and then he pops out on the other side only to be confronted with Tenaldier, um and and sort of reported back to the uh, back to Valjean. But after all of this, uh, Valjean ends up face to face with uh, actually, no, in the process of saving Marius's life, he also saves um, Javert's life. So yeah. Javert is there with the rebels. He was, being a, he was spying on them, essentially, and the mm-hmm. rebels capture him, and they were going to kill him. And Valjean volunteers to kill him, but he decides not to, and he just lets him go which is this, exactly. this mind-blowing thing. Uh, Javert just can't figure out. It doesn't make any sense to him, uh, but Valjean lets him go. And then 
he ends up running into the two end up meeting again after he gets out of the sewer and Javert can can't decide what to do with him and so he has this moment of tense conflict and throws himself into the river because he can't uh, justify his his course of action anymore he he's too there's too much inner conflict and he just decides that either he must change his entire moral philosophy and everything about the way he's lived his whole life and reframe all of it so that he's the bad guy or he must kill himself essentially and um, and so he does and so he eliminates he he essentially allows uh, Jean Valjean to go free uh, per, like he was the last the last uh, remaining hold of the law on Valjean and he eliminates himself so that uh, Jean, uh, Jean Valjean can go free I think I got their names backwards there in that last one but that's that's essentially that the culminating moment there um, only yeah and then then there's a couple little details that get tied up at the end that was a good summary, and uh, yes, uh, that was pretty uh, crucial, so I'm glad you um, <laughs> filled all of that in, um, because that's what, uh, as you've already described now, um, leads to that suicide, right. um, and it's it's Javert catching up with what he's already done. He's right. thinking back on what he has already done. He has witnessed Jean Valjean let him go mm-hmm. when he really expected to be knifed. He's, uh, it's, it's really uh, intense stuff. We've got... Right. Um, Marius sees them leave with uh, a gun and a knife and um, then he can't see them anymore. They're out of sight. And um, Jean Valjean puts the the gun underneath his arm, pulls out the knife and uh, Javert um, elitistly like laughs at him and says, oh, that's more your style. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Kill me. And he just cuts his bonds, one of which is at his neck. He cuts his bonds and he says, you're free, go. And... Uh, he's dumbfounded. Right. And he even runs back as he's walking away and says, uh, just kill me. And, and Jean says, no, uh, I'm not going to do that. And they part ways. And that is the beginning of the undoing oh, of Javert. Just unraveling. Of this, exactly. Yep. This, this convict who he's not been a convict now for how many years right. over deck, over a decade. Yeah. I mean, and that's it doesn't where... matter. He, you're still a convict. That's yep. who you are. You're going <laughs> to knife me. You Ugh, horrible. So good. And yet he doesn't, that's like one of the pinnacles of mercy. And yep. so for me, that's a climax. And then another climax where we right. get Javert thinking back on his, on his actions when he does the same mm-hmm. for Jean Valjean. Yeah, and Jean Valjean, he's one of those situations where he had every reason to kill Javert. Yes. Like, there was, there was nothing but pure mercy uh, that would justify letting him go. Like, there was no reason. Javert, everyone, all of the people in the, in the um, barricade expected him to, to kill Javert. It was, uh, there was the, their enmity and the fact that, you know, Javert was the only person who's been pursuing Valjean all of these years. Like, there's no reason for him to let him go whatsoever, except to, to as a, like, complete demonstration of the, the change in his own heart. Yeah. Um, and that's not the first one. There's a, This is, like, the second or third demonstration, but Javert just could, could never believe it. All the way along, he couldn't believe that Valjean had actually changed. And the reality is, Valjean, he changes really early on. He changes at the very beginning of the story, um, and we didn't really talk about that we moment were of that character. To miss this, <clears throat> I know, yes. and it's, it's so. <laughs> I, 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 we've got through mo- enough of the plot because I want to jump into that. That that's like one of the first times I've really cried in any story. Mm. Was this this beautiful moment at the very beginning where uh, the priest then. 
this the book starts out with a with an hour's worth of listening or two or three hours worth of listening describing the character of this priest who lives in this little town and he's just the most upstanding character right that there's a lot of uh priest characters in in old fiction but even modern fiction where they're sort of they set him up as a more as a contrast to, to demonstrate how even this person who's sort of holy can be embezzling funds and supporting people he wants to support and are actually really selfish about their religious position. But that's not this guy. This guy is the real deal. He's got this huge stipend that he gets from the church and he gives almost all of it away. And then he goes and he uh, applies to the church to get more money so that he can, uh, pres- uh, what is he? he says that so he can have a coach because he, he's old and he's getting around. He's just walking everywhere. And, and they give him another fat chunk of money for the coach, which is enough for most people to live on. And he just gives it all away and keeps walking. You know, he's just, just absolutely the most pure in heart character. Yeah. And his one sort of indulgence, his one luxury are these silver candlesticks. Um, and that's where you first meet Valjean because Valjean's been, he gets out of prison for the first time the, after his first 14 year stint. Uh, he hadn't, uh, he was wandering around. He was kind of a known convict uh, and he like knocks at all these inns and nobody lets him in. And he sort of almost breaks into this priest's house and he, he's, he's telling this priest, I'm a convict, you know, you, you shouldn't let me in, whatever. And the priest, oh, no, no, come in. And he feeds him and gives him a best bed and like gives him such a warm reception. And then Valjean uh, steals his candlesticks and leaves that night. Um, but this beautiful thing happens the next day when uh, Valjean is, is sort of stopped on the road uh, and uh, I don't know if it was stopped by Javert or just some other um, some other police officer um, of the law. And uh, Valjean is is sort of questioned as to why he has these these sticks. And so the police officers bring him back to the to the local priest's house and say, "Hey, you know this guy's got your your candlesticks because everyone knew that was the one luxury the guy had because uh, he he used to leave them out all the time." Uh, and, and so the, the priest goes, oh yes, I gave those to him. And look, you forgot the silverware. And he like brings out his silver silverware and gives it to Valjean and said, you know, I can't believe you left without it. Now go on and take care of yourself here. And it's just, it's just this, oh, just mind blowing act of grace in the face of betrayal. Uh, that is the transformation that is sort of, it's kind of the, the, the first pebble that starts the landslide that changes all of these people's lives. Um, and it's such a, such a simple, elegant, deep act. Yeah. Um, and I think that yeah. Hugo Weaving's, um, Hugo Weaving, Hugo, <laughs> sorry. Uh, Victor, Victor Hugo. Hugo, Victor Hugo's forgivable. <laughs> his, uh, commentary is, is something to the effect that all we really need to change people's lives are deep acts of mercy. You know, and in this case, he used a priest to do it, but I don't think that necessarily has to come from any religious person, but it has to come from the heart and they have to be like sincere. It's these, these moments of deep self-sacrifice for someone else that are transformative. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, um, definitely a cry worthy moment and uh, utterly oh, powerful so deep. in the, um, in the book because yeah, that's exactly right. And this is something the play gets well. And I think the Liam Neeson movie, I have seen this. It does. It clip. captures it pretty it well. It captures it very well because he also says after the, um, the security, the police leave, right. he's like, I've bought your soul for God. Be a better man, mm-hmm. um, with the silver. I give it to you. Be a better man, have a new life. And right. that 
really undoes because he doesn't understand. Jean Valjean does not understand why he's been shown mercy no. because he's nobody, never been shown mercy. Nobody has shown him love or mercy, right. and and the actions that, as you say, the simple and yet powerful, which does impoverish the him further the right. the bishop and he lives is it his sister that he I takes care of and lives sister, with yeah. she is not on board no, with all of this and it. she's frustrated they're gonna have to eat out of you know wood use wood utensils and whatnot right. and now and he's like this is what it's about yeah. but um yeah that's crucial because this changes the kind of person that javert thinks all criminals are all right. convicts are these hardened men which as you've brought up well and uh, in the middle of this discussion that um, criminal justice systems, should they be so, um, is there any room for rest- restoration in these kinds of systems that we already have in place? Right. Another subject, but... Um, and are they you, worth the cost? And you harden um, these people through the, this treatment rather than showing them love and mercy. And what a powerful thing to do a so-called impossible thing, right. which is turn a hardened convict into... Um, a man of mercy and love. Right. And we know he was hardened because in the next scene, Valjean steals it like a, a small denomination coin from some kid yeah. uh, when he drops it. And that is what ultimately ends it, lands him back under the law again. And he didn't need to. And immediately after he does it, he, he kind of has this moment of extreme dissonance within himself where he realizes, wait, wait, I'm not the kind of person who would do this anymore. And then he goes searching for the kid to try and give it back. But it was too late. He's like stood there immobilized for too long and the kid was gone and he's not able to right that wrong after he realizes that that he was wrong. So all this whole time before, he didn't even know, he had very little grid about just how immoral he was being and it didn't matter to him because he saw himself the way everyone else did. He was just a criminal. But in this moment, he realizes that, wait, I can't be a criminal anymore. Like something about him was deeply changed by the act of the priest. Um, but now he's once again sort of at the mercy of the law. Uh, and and that's why Javert ultimately is able to get him again is because of this story uh, of this kid being robbed. Um, well, so it kind of ends up haunting him. Yeah, yeah, it does haunt him. Then um, you're right. It's like a there's like a two stage to if we'll call it a conversion mm-hmm. of uh, this transformation. Right. Uh, it's not the big act. Let's call it of the of the giving of the silver. It's this small coin that's like not worth anything. This kid walking down a road, as you said, and uh, it's that straw that breaks and changes everything. Right. Um, Just like uh, I think ultimately that final moment where. Uh, Javert and Valjean meet it's that second time where you know Javert sees Valjean with Marius over his shoulder um, and he can't bring himself to arrest him that time because he's got too much cognitive dissonance going on like he just can't he 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 can't make himself do it it doesn't it doesn't seem like the right thing and I just once again I love Javert in that he's a person who's utterly committed to doing what he sees as the right thing Uh, and and I can I can have a lot more sympathy for a character like that. You know, he comes across as kind of malicious and vicious and and heartless, but but deep down he's someone who's a man of conviction and a man of morals and uh, in many ways the opposite of of a convict, the opposite of of someone who's careless about it. And and that's an admirable thing. You know, every police station he ends up in, he does well and succeeds and is promoted and and um, and people like him, you can build strong, stable societies on, which. Um, 
sort of draws into question is, okay, well, how, how strong and how rigid are, should our societies be um, in order to maintain the peace versus um, allow people to be human, you know, and to mm-hmm. change and transform. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the gist of the plot. We kind of got most of it out of there. We got most of it. I'll, I'll just try to get to the actual end, but I'll just very quickly, which is Marius having witnessed um, uh, Jean Valjean take Javert away and then hearing a gunshot because after Javert walks away, he fires the gunshot and right. tells everybody, Jean Valjean, that he's done the deed. Mm-hmm. So everyone believes that he did kill Javert. Right. Now, of course, everyone in the barricade is arrested and or killed. And the only one to survive is Marius because uh, Jean Valjean grabs him in the nick of time and waltzes through those sewers that we are um, given a history of as well <laughs> uh, by uh, Victor Hugo, which is his love for his country. He wrote most of Les Mes. He did some, uh, a lot of finishing and uh, editing uh, in exile. And so okay. it's amazing. You feel like you're in Paris and France while you're reading this book, but it is him writing in exile with passion for his country. Um, anyway, yes, the sewers. He gets out. Um, Marius believes that Jean Valjean's not a good guy, and right. he's concerned for Cosette and doesn't understand Jean Valjean at all. Yeah. And, and he kind of puts together a little bit of Valjean's backstory too, somehow. Yeah, and it, at least the the worst parts of it. It takes. Theander, um, trying to blackmail Marius at the very end by telling him uh, parts of Jean Valjean's story that Marius has wondered about in his own investigations. But indeed, Theander, in trying to blackmail Marius into giving him money and um, prestige, the opposite happens and everything clicks together. Oh, Jean Valjean is not a... Right, villain. He's because, actually the most incredible person that I've ever because Marius doesn't know that Valjean saved his life. He has no idea. Yeah, so he's passed out that whole time yep. that that Valjean saves him. He doesn't. I don't think he even knows that Valjean is. No, I guess he does. He knows that Valjean was the one who was there in the barricade with him, but he doesn't know that he's the one who saved him. And so Thénardier comes along and tells him that that not only did he murder this one person, he also murdered this other person and dragged him through the sewers and dumped him in the river. And Marios is like, what? Yep. And then realizes it was him and he didn't kill him. He actually saved him. And so it, all these things sort of kind of land together at the last second here. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think he, I, I could be wrong. I think he has a little bit of a, a piece of fabric that he shows as like yes, evidence right. and Mario sees it and it's like proof that that was I was wearing that that's yep. part of my coat and he's just showing it to me right. while he's trying to tell me that this is a villain that's murdered yeah, so it's right, right. Oh, that is probably the most climactic part for me mm-hmm. in the entire book um, definitely right. is the is the great reveal and Marius going I've been it I've been a fool so anyway well at this point he had been he had been mistreating Valjean in the process of trying to well in the so Valjean was letting Marius woo Cosette um, at a distance and kind of he was separating himself from them so that they would hopefully be separated from his criminal background because Marius thinks that all this money that Valjean's got was ill-gotten gains and he thinks that there's this whole reputation thing that's going to follow him if he marries Cosette and so he's like really trying to create separation and Valjean is doing the same for the sake of Cosette because he thinks that he's still got this record he doesn't know that Javert is not alive anymore and not following him and that he's really free and so he's trying to do what's best for his daughter. And in the process, he's just dying of a broken heart because of the separation that is being created. 
That's one of the so sad. most heartbreaking parts is that Jean Valjean and, uh, doesn't believe in his own redemption. Yes. He works all of these acts of self-sacrifice um, over and over again out of his love, unconditional love for Cosette. Right. And uh, really struggles to see the the redemption that he he has had. Right. And um, I found that to be one of the biggest tragedies of the story. Um but you're right. He he basically works himself to ill health as soon as Marius and Cosette are married, which is pretty not too much longer after the barricade. Right. Marius has to get better, but he's kind of like either I marry the the woman that I love, or life's not worth living. Mm-hmm. And nobody's getting in the way of that marriage. And um, pretty soon they're married, but Marius won't let Cosette see um, her father. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Jean Valjean respects this even though it breaks his heart and Marius um, does the commandeering husband thing Mm -hmm. and Cosette obeys that and it takes uh, the blackmailing attempts of Theander for everything to come together and they race to see Jean Valjean who is almost dead at this point. They hadn't seen him for quite a while. They hadn't seen him for quite a while and he had rapidly deteriorated and um, he basically dies in Cosette's arms at the, uh, yeah, at the so end of uh, they they all meet Marius is able to say that he is sorry and right. and call him father right um it's that final redemptive moment and, and i will say that's something the play does quite beautifully um the way that they wrap that up and it's pretty right. accurate to the yeah to the book they, I, I didn't um, remember that from the original from the first movie i saw but the play captures uh, that moment because the movie uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> does depart but um i will say one of the biggest departures the play makes of the book is the song Bring Him Home, which is well, well beloved by musical lovers and lovers of the play. It's a very famous song, but it's a song of basically Jean Valjean in the barricade praying to God that Marius's life would be spared. But that's a departure because it's not showing the inner struggle that Jean Valjean has the entire time with Marius. He doesn't like Marius. Right. He doesn't he have thinks, any reason to like him. He no one has any He's going to steal like Cosette him. away from him, first off. And right. second off, he's this upstart kid who's kind of dumb and gets in, involved in things that Jean Valjean couldn't really care about. And right. Well, he has no job, no prospects. No, he, I mean, he's rejected his family's money. He doesn't have anything that's like anything of classical value aside yeah. from his love. He's he, really kind of, I don't like Marius at all. Like, I, I have very mixed feelings about Marius, partially because you can see a lot of yourself in him. And I, I like that he does have a good character arc. But you're right. Mm-hmm. He, most of the time you're, you're spending yourself going, I, he is frustrating. And you agree with Jean-Jean. You're like, this guy is kind of a loser. Um, Mar- uh, Jean Valjean really does feel tempted to let Marius die in the barricade. And Cosette wouldn't know any different per se, but she begs him nonetheless right. to do everything he can to save Marius. Because uh, Marius has effectively written her a goodbye letter and she right. thinks that she'll never see him again. It's his love for Cosette that drives him to work that act of mercy and really jeopardize his own life in the process Absolutely. as we've already covered with the run-ins with Javert and getting into the sewers and etc. So um yeah, that's the one departure I really do struggle with from from the play's perspective and the book's perspective. It gives more nuance to the character of just how much of a sacrifice right. Jean Valjean's willing to give for somebody quite just how conflicted for he this is about twit, that process. For this kid. <laughs> I don't like this guy. Rather right. than bring him home just this um, you know, espousal of love for him, right. basically. 
um, uh, this purity. And yeah. I think that's uh, even less relatable, actually. Yeah, right. They In the book, Valjean's character is is more nuanced that way. Like he, he's not a saint and he doesn't see himself as such because he's he's keenly aware of his own propensity towards like selfishness, which mostly manifests in his efforts to preserve the things that matter to him, which is Cosette. Like she's the only thing that matters to him at all. Um, and that could easily have like, that could have deteriorated into a, a relationship that was really unhealthy for them both and kind of borders on that at times. But because he is committed to actually doing what's best for her, he, he doesn't let that happen. And it's a, it's a, a true mark of character in him that, that he's able to make that transition yeah. as a, as a fairly recent new dad myself. Um, I, I am already imagining that being a brutally difficult transition to make, Yeah, <laughs> you know, just with the way that my daughter's just absolutely melted my heart. Um, I can imagine how hard that would be to, to let go of that at, at, at some point at the appropriate moment. Cause it, there will be an appropriate moment most likely at some point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, I guess, does bring us to the end of the book, finally. Right. The plot. <laughs> That's the actual end of the plot. And we've then. definitely skipped over things, too, but appropriately so. Yeah. So, so I, you know, the next thing I just want, want to address is looking at some of these characters. We've obviously delved into them a little bit, but what is it, um, who are the characters that you really admire most, and what is it about their actions and their choices that uh, you see as particularly admirable? Mm. Okay. Um. I will say that uh, I, there are moments when I admire each character and I'm going to cheat and I'm not going to answer your question exactly directly <laughs> because um, in all honesty, that's part of what is a draw to the story and to the characters is uh, Victor Hugo does an amazing job of the uh, making their lives so relatable that and he interweaves philosophy into it as well, which I have a, a degree in. Um, I'm about to get my second degree; it's in theology, and they're but they're closely married, so you know we could say too. I mean. mm-hmm. But um, the admirable qualities of Jean Valjean are uh, definitely impactful, and were and have been impactful for me. Um, but it's even aspects and other characters like Javert, who's kind of not such a admirable character at all, but seeing myself and elements and my propensities in him through these dialogues and these descriptions that, uh, inner dialogues, I should say, right. that Hugo provides that, um, I'm probably jumping the gun on giving the vices aspect, but gives, no, go for it. Com- um, compare contrast if that makes it easier because yeah. there really is, there is an intentional contrast set up between these characters. Yeah, yeah, but it it draws you in and it helps you question yourself and what what resonates. Um, but uh, yeah, let me let me just think quickly as well. Um, I Cosette is not someone I really relate to, mm-hmm. um, and Marius I related more to, but in a way that was um, more fleeting and it wasn't as deep. Mm-hmm. Um, and well cassette's character i mean you know the classic of the time there's it's not known for great nuanced deep female characters uh literature of the era you know but uh, but valjean and, and javert and even Thénardier, they have fairly consistent uh consistent profiles throughout um they it's one of the things that probably 
one of the reasons I don't, one of the things I like less about this book is there's not a, a whole lot of arc to most of the characters. Um, for example, Javert, uh, Javert obviously is completely consistent until the very end. Valjean is transformed right at the beginning, and then he's sort of working out that transformation um, in various scenarios, but it's not like his patterns of behavior really change that much. You get to see the inner dialogue and the fact that he's not necessarily completely transformed um, throughout, but at the same time, he doesn't change that much. You know, he, he exemplifies this ethic of, of, of self-sacrifice, really, and of willingness to, to love someone else uh, to the maximal degree possible. To, to, um, and, and I think he kind of picks that up from the priest um, and, and the priest's purity in his actions and the way the priest lived his life and sort of that one example he had, that one moral example that he realized is more valuable than all of the, the legal examples of, of everyone else. You know, obviously, he, doesn't, he is jaded and rejecting of, of the more legal moral code uh, that Javert ascribes to. Um, but yeah, so he's just walking that out and it's an admirable thing and he's meant to be our hero. And I think we're meant to sort of recognize that, that more flexible ethic that's based on just loving people well. Um, and that is, that is admirable. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how, how real it is. I have a hard time following that and thinking, oh yes, like really buying into it because I can't imagine being that selfless. <laughs> under any circumstances. <laughs> um, and having having read a lot more Ayn Rand recently, I'm not exactly convinced of the validity of that kind of selfish, selflessness either, but that's a whole other discussion. Oh, that is a whole other discussion. Oh my goodness. Um, Next episode, Atlas Shrugged. Eh? Yeah, right. Well, I'm working on that one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, wow. There's, yeah, I... But yeah, I want to hear your your take on some of those. Mm, yeah, on, on narrowing in... I, I do see what you're saying about the, the lack thereof of um, character development for Jean Valjean and more of an outplay, as you worded it, of this ma- major transformation of sacrifice. We've failed to mention another sacrifice, which is maybe the beginning of a series of sacrifices that he makes when um, Javert, at the, early on, went in the mayor years where he has a new name and has a new identity, Javert thinks he finds Jean Valjean. It's the wrong person. And one of the most memorable parts of the book for me was reading this um, sleepless night where uh, Monsieur Le Maire, just want to let you know, I found the guy, the convict that has been um, renegade for a while, this guy named uh, Jean Jean Valjean, 24601 Mm -hmm. is his number. And I'm going to bring him to court tomorrow. And he's definitely going to be convicted of crime that he's committed um and he confesses right like this person like says uh, he's supposed to be like an unintelligent like peasant or something right yeah but he i think he for whatever reason confesses to a crime that he didn't even necessarily do this person who gets caught up in this and javert really does believe it's been enough years that he he, uh he really believes that he's got his man and monsieur le maire aka the actual jean valjean it's one of the most classic um, moral dilemmas that mm. the book poses and right. maybe even um, literature of the time in the 19th century poses. I might go so far as to argue of, okay, I have an out. This is an unlovable, unintelligent, not going anywhere kind of guy. 
the only thing going for him is that he is actually innocent. (laughs) I, on the other hand, have transformed myself. I have made myself a better person. I now have hundreds and hundreds of workers uh, that I am uh, in charge of at this factory that I own and I'm the mayor and I've done a lot of reform and I'm a really good person now. Wouldn't it make sense to sacrifice this one nobody who's not going to do what I've done or am planning on doing um, for the good of many people are going to lose their jobs town. for the good of this whole town. Yeah. It's not ego really. Um, we, as the reader are, are, are tracking with him. We're not saying you egotistical crazy. You're, mm-hmm. you know, putting yourself in a place of self-importance. We're not saying that because we have tracked along and we have seen his transformation and right. are invested in that, uh, in that change and in the good that he has, uh, worked and what we've already become familiar with is a very, um, often unjust system for the uh, the poor. Right. Um, I mean the the French title of Le Miserable it can translate in a couple of ways, but is basically the miserable ones or misery. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a sleepless night, and um, Dostoevsky explores this a little bit in his book Crime and Punishment. But can we sacrifice one person one that we don't innocent. really like? Yeah. Um, even though, but the thing that is you know, important about them is that they've not committed the crime in question. Right. Right. They've done nothing wrong. Can't we sacrifice them Mm -hmm. for the good of the many? Um, After this sleepless night, um, Jean Valjean answers that for himself and he says, I'm going to turn myself in. That's a huge, huge thing. And I really connected with that struggle Mm -hmm. as we walk through it. That's a profound moment. It's a very profound moment. So, and it's perhaps uh, Hugo, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt here, but it's perhaps Hugo's most compelling criticism of the justice system as such is this fact that sometimes innocent people get caught up in it. And in his mind and in the mind of the story and the very fact that you engage with this and we as an audience generally track and will side with Valjean in this decision, like we will say he was the more moral person by giving himself up in place of this innocent person. Uh, we sort of imply our assent in this moral ethic that uh, despite great cost to many, it's not okay to imprison an innocent person. And perhaps maybe we're better off letting off guilty people if if it prevents us from incriminating an innocent person. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is part of, it, it starts towards the beginning of the book, all of this. But right. I, I do want to put in a vote that I think there's subtle changes for him. We even mm-hmm. see maybe... Uh, with the accrual of his life, um, he should wise up to the fact that redemption happened for him and can happen for others. And it's not sheerly doing good in the world, right. but it is your um, your status sort of with yourself. Soul and, transformation. That- yeah. And um, I think that he has like an anti-transformation, you can almost say. When he does, he refuses up until the very end to believe that uh, there's such a thing as a good person and that he classifies as that. Because this right. is always in the background here um, mm-hmm. of this story is is the, the tension and the fight between good and evil and whether someone is a good or bad person. And letting the gray into this without throwing out these qualities. Right. And Jean Valjean goes from not caring that he's uh, not a good person that has definitely had uh, life give him a short end of a stick stealing bread right. out of desperation out of starvation and being um, imprisoned harshly for it um, he he doesn't believe that he's 
he has goodness in him no matter what. And we along with Cosette and Marius eventually, huh? Right. Are, are saying and wanting to shout at him, no, that's not true. Real right. transformation has happened and it's an injustice to yourself that you right. do not see it. So He transforms in the eyes of the audience way faster than, than in his own eyes, if at all, in his own eyes, because apparently he doesn't. So if that can be called an anti-transformation or what, yeah. I, I understand what you mean there's about... There's some admirable humility in that. Yeah, the character arc, I think there's subtleties there that it's his own style of consistency mm-hmm. that um, I think is really worth tracking with and is relatable in its own ways because we want to be consistent usually usually human beings have a moral system right that they want to be committed to and right. consistent with right and and when we are inconsistent with our own stated moral values there, there's a cognitive dissonance that happens that we're aware of like most people that most normal non-sociopathic people, which is most people, um, are at least somewhat aware when they're compromising their own sense of what's right and wrong. Um, and so we do tend to admire people like like all of our main characters who who are consistent with what they say, who, whose actions are consistent with the morality that they profess. Um, yeah, yeah. And then your sense of self plays a role in this too of uh, where you're coming from and your motives so Jean Valjean believes he's a bad person and he wants to not be a bad person so he does good things right and maybe he's believes he's a bad person so he's more willing to turn himself in Mm -hmm. thinking that he really deserves the the prison sentence that he fully expects to get in this crime scene in this uh, in this moment yeah, it's his non-resistance to Javert's arrest. He's sad that he's been caught, but he's mm-hmm. been caught and he's not going to resist him. And that's right. an additional reason why Javert struggles when he's like, this guy isn't even resisting. He's not even putting up a fight. I got him and he's um, he's going to acquiesce. He doesn't want that change to be possible mm-hmm. either. And yet it is. But we are, as the audience, going, no, no, you've served your sentence. Mm-hmm. You, you deserve to be free. You are... Um, you're both wrong, Javert and mm-hmm. Jean Valjean. He does not deserve to go to jail. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what do you think about that decision? Do you think he made the right decision? Or uh, how, do you, how do you see that moment? Um, who? Uh, um, Valjean. When he decides to turn himself in. Mm, was that the right decision? Yeah. Um, I would have preferred him to be coming from a different place, which is... Uh, a place of I care about Javert as a person and I want to undo the moral ethic that is driving him that he believes in because I don't believe that's uh, a world of flourishing for society and individuals and I'm going to turn myself in to uh, use a a biblical proverb to heap coals of burning burning coals upon his head in my action of um, sacrifice. So you. Think- so I don't. Be- so that would mean I don't believe in the justice of the system that says that I deserve arrest. But I, um, I am going to acquiesce to the system nonetheless as a sign of maybe silent protest. But he, Jean Valjean, is not silently protesting. Right. He genuinely. So his reasoning, to turn in you, you don't in. necessarily believe in his, his moral reasoning there or his ethical process that brings him to that decision. Yes. So, uh, but, but you think he did the right thing, uh, despite that, you know, you, you think that it still was the right thing to do. Maybe if not for the sake of, uh, the justice of sparing one individual 
and incriminating himself as a guilty party, but rather um, for the chance that he might transform this one individual who seems to have overly exuberantly bought into the justice system as such. Something like that. I think I also think that um, you want, um, well, okay. I Let might, me rephrase the question that yeah. might help clarify that. Yes, please. Um, would it have been okay? Would it have been morally justified or morally right for him to just let the other guy be sent to jail and to be free? Oh, we're going back to the... Yeah, to that same same scenario, yeah. that, that, that long night yeah. bef- in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's always a question. We're now getting into the minutia of what Jean Valjean, how he, how he, he lives his life. Because if he's really, really consistent with uh, letting himself be at the mercy of the justice system of the day, then he wouldn't be running away from Javert, would he? Right. But it's his devotion to Cosette that keeps him from turning himself in the whole time. Right. And so there's two systems of justice, so-called justice, we'll say, because mm-hmm. is it really a just justice system that the French um, authorities are enacting at the time? Exactly as a question. But um, he's, a, he's enacting, I have a, I have a duty uh, to Cosette as a living person. And I also have a duty to her dead mother who I failed. Um, and that usurps the other duty I have to turn myself in to the authorities for additional minor petty crimes that I have committed in the eyes of the justice system since my initial sentence as a convict. And um, so it's, it's hard because why does he say, why is he willing to turn himself in with almost dead Marius on his back at that moment? Why doesn't he try to keep running? It's almost the boring truisms of life where it's like I've run out of strength and energy and there's nowhere to run so I have no other option it would be foolish to resist but if he had a chance to get out get out of there get out of the uh the net of Javert at that moment you're talking about the very end now yes um going back to that spot Mm -hmm. I think he would have so it's the tensions of these two duties that he does admit to and believe in that are keeping him from running and also being willing once he's been caught by Javert to not resist right well what i don't think you you haven't answered it yet though what do you think like is the how do you make your judgment for yourself if you were in his position you're not gonna let me off the hook no i want i want to hear (laughs) from the philosophical theologian here oh my goodness about this moral quandary because it's such a good it really is such a good moral quandary like it's it's a great setup for for this exactly this question and after you give me a good satisfactory answer i'll give you mine but i'm curious oh hysterical what will satisfy you (laughs) (laughs) um i i feel tempted at this point then to bring up Socrates who um, we've talked about in the past Mm -hmm. but he is somebody who believed in the injustice of the the democratic process's decision he um to basically uh, execute him for so-called corrupting the youth of Athens Mm -hmm. but he does go along with the sentence because he believes so highly in the governmental and justice systems and he believes in the law uh, and land of the people so it's it's you if you do philosophy uh, uh, as an undergrad or in any courses you're going to come up against these classic conundrums of when i have done supposedly 
and truly nothing wrong. I've right. not committed a crime, and I'm here because people hate me. Right. Um, when but, morality conflicts with the law. But when the government says that I deserve death, do I resist because there's a higher law that uh, speaks truly of my innocence? Or do I submit to the law because it's the law? Mm-hmm. And because I believe in... Uh, democracy or the government and the powers that be it doesn't have to be democracy right um and socrates takes willingly um hemlock um poisoning and um and dies uh so in a way we've got a little bit of relationship with what uh, jean valjean is facing with javert um okay i'm standing with dead marius on my back and i'm facing no no in the um oh no you're in in the the room the the courtroom yes the courtroom after you're told that some other person's about ready to take the fall for your petty crime from 10 years ago and you've got an entire town depending on you and your business uh what's your what's your i would have turned myself in i would have yeah yes i would have I would have turned myself in. It would have been a difficult decision as well. But I, I actually, for some reason, that's easier to answer than okay. the um, other one. But uh, yes, um, because that will haunt you the rest of your life. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter that, uh, it, it just doesn't matter that it was someone you don't value. I Let me reframe that then. Oh, because you- <laughs> I like, I like that. I mean, I, I like that. I appreciate that you're willing to jump onto that. That you think that's the right thing to okay, do. Okay, you want and, to problematize and this I, for me? Yes, I do. Okay. But, and I also appreciate that the way you um, justify that to yourself is actually personally because uh, another a, a common sort of ethical euf- not euphemism a um, heuristic I've heard to sort of help people make good ethical decisions is this idea of well, what what makes you sleep better at night? And I think that's a really useful practical heuristic because that's one anyone can do no matter how much training you've got, no matter how much religion or other theories, you can ask yourself, okay, what decision am I going to sleep better with? Um, and I think ultimately that's what you're what you're saying here is that, you know, uh, by turning myself in, I will be okay with that. If I don't, I will forever be thinking about this poor sap who's sitting in prison uh, where I should be. Um and that's a really valid way to address it. But let me reframe that. Uh, say, say you decide to let the poor sap suffer. Um, <laughs> and then, and five years later, the way you think about it is instead, I am living not only for myself, but for this person who no longer has the opportunity to live his life. And not only that, so I'm going to do the best that I can for myself and the best that I can for the other person, just like I'm doing the best that I can for Cosette. I'll take a wager that that's very similar to the answer that you're going to give soon when it's when I'm not on the hot seat anymore. Um, that feels quite loaded and, and, and uh, stacked up. Um, I'll also go back quickly and clarify that I, I would agree that um, you've, you've articulated the conscience uh, method of uh, deciding how to uh, live well in the world. I um, am a professing Christian, and I would nuance it for myself and say that I do value the the inherent intrinsic value in other individuals as mm-hmm. image bearers of God and beloved of God, and that if I love God and profess love of God, then I will do the same thing, and I will love people the way that God genuinely does love them, which is unconditional. And this is why Christians are supposed to love their enemies. And it's both love your neighbor and love your enemy. Mm-hmm. So it's not just what's good for my conscience. That's it, honestly, it can be uh, rightly spun as a selfish um, 
motivation. It's just whatever is going to give me the most peaceful life that I can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly nice too. And I, uh, the aspects of love your neighbor, um, do involve yourself as a person too and how you love yourself. And that's another subject for another time. But um, I think it's important that there's a, gets back into um, reasons and motivations uh, right. for yourself. That's uh, a, a little bit of a clarification I yeah. would make. So in, in your making that decision, you're going to weight somewhat heavily the obligation towards that other human um, to to treat them well treat them as you would treat yourself for example you wouldn't want someone else to throw you under the bus for something you didn't do and i would then go uh take on your your question that you've now posed and i Mm -hmm. would say five years down the road it is impossible for me to live for that person especially when they've not asked me to Mm -hmm. and that changes the story if they say i'm going to sacrifice myself for you well because that didn't ask him to live for her either Mm, well, and if we want to bring in the characters, yeah, mm-hmm. but to just ask your hypothetical question of sure. living for the person sitting in prison. Right, sort of allowing that person to be an, another inspiration for your continued they good didn't, deeds. They didn't ask for that. I can't live for somebody else, um, especially when they've not uh, given that to me. And whether they can or cannot give that to me is another question. Right. Um, but that would be my response is that doesn't matter. Um, I can't live for two people. Um, it could be a way to rationalize, especially if someone has died. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you could rationalize that you owe it to that person to live well. In a way, that's a twist, mm-hmm. kind of a sinister twist, but twist nonetheless on what happens with between the bishop and Jean Valjean of um, go forth and live mm-hmm. um, a good life and a life for um, for everyone. And right. um, so... Uh, oh, so you want to bring Cosette? Or do you want to answer? No, I, I'm not quite ready to answer. I want to throw one more little tangle in there. I feel like you've there. There's a element of agency there, and um, a pretty key uh, a, a key aspect to any ethical conversation it deals with agency. Mm-hmm. And it's um, there's a lot of gray area and difficulties when it comes to you know when are the appropriate times to act without someone else's. Uh, agency uh, in in a manner that affects them. You know, there's a lot of paternalistic arguments there uh, that are much more commonly accepted in today's discourse than I find acceptable. But um, that's a good way to another good um, uh, a a good way to sort of nullify part of that conversation. You know, while while you might theoretically uh, use that justification for your own peace of mind, it's not dependent on it's independent of that other person's choice and so that's uh, almost always almost always the wrong thing to do to take away someone else's uh, ability to choose yeah agency and dignity one might say that you didn't do that uh, or you wouldn't have done that except rather it was the justice system that did that because ultimately they are the ones who are committing that injustice but um so there, there also enters the whole. Uh, is it the same? Is it the same unethical level to to not intervene as it is to to do something actively um, that is unjust? Whereas the justice system was doing something actively unjust, uh, Valjean was could perhaps simply just um, not act and and be you know how guilty are you at that point by not acting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so that's that's another another great ethical question that i i pretty firmly believe that that n- withholding action is not as um not as negative a 
uh, not as great a crime as mm-hmm. actively mm-hmm. Uh, actively doing something malicious or actively doing something that is going to harm someone else. And uh, I don't think any Christian um, could say those are the same thing and still believe in a good God mm-hmm. who is even remotely um, powerful or capable of involving themselves in human lives. Because if, if a Christian is going to believe that God is involved in human lives and also guilty for the sake of not acting in the case of people's harm, then um, he's a very guilty God, <laughs> which goes against, causes all sorts of other problems. So uh, if I'm going to, to follow a Christian ethic there with any consistency, I have to also assume that um, <clears throat> even though I might have the power to act on behalf of someone in their favor when, when something unjust is happening, I am not necessarily incriminated uh, by not acting on their behalf if it's uh, if it seems to be a wise thing to do <clears throat> and there is there and perhaps is part of my answer as well <laughs> definitely definitely yeah. okay um do you want to like give your full fleshed answer or would that be well i'm just curious if that if if that sort of other you know again some slightly different framing if that plays into your decision at all or if that if or that's you know all that's relatively inconsequential compared to your initial conviction Okay, uh, two questions in there, or two two responses then. Um, first, uh, no, it doesn't change anything for okay. me. But second, um, this is a we could do an entire podcast on all that you've just said there with um, how does one um, live before God and on this earth, and what it's getting into the bones of what is morality too. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and everything from divine command theories to um, more deistic understandings of God, a God that's more offhand. And then you doing anything from a deontological approach to life, which is kind of like what Javert does. And this is developed and made famous by Immanuel Kant, who's, Mm -hmm. it's like taking the golden rule to the upteenth, the extreme. Right. um, Would be a very um, rough and ready way of describing deontology. Or utilitarian, which is very much a, uh, a quantification of valuing and it, it's a, uh, I'll throw out a Mr. Spock quote to the good of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Right. Um, that's Star Trek. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, please. We got to have, people have to know enough Star Trek. To, I to don't know. That. I don't no, know. Maybe not. <laughs> anyway, um, that would be an aspect, a huge aspect of utilitarianism. These are mm-hmm. some of the biggest. Right. Um, I think the utilitarian ethic would pretty universe like consistently say that Valjean made a poor decision there by turning himself in because he was clearly helping far more people than this other individual who was going to be imprisoned for his sake um there'd be almost no question as to that and and that's utilitarian ethics gets really gray when the outcomes are kind of gray so it's it's really hard to be utilitarian if you're not super confident about the outcomes because the justification of the action depends on those outcomes uh, and in this case, it seems like a pretty clear one, uh, which is more that could be said for many of such decisions. But um, like you're saying, you're taking an ethical approach that says differently. Yes. And um, I, I would want to hear more from you on um, some of the things you said about God being um, morally culpable and to hear a little bit of uh, what you mean by that. But I, I can get a general semblance of what you mean. But I... Uh, that's not the God I believe in, actually. And so that doesn't then cohere with my personal choices and my personal decisions in these scenarios. Okay. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, it's fascinating. Your your response was it was a surprise. I, I expected you to take Javert's, or I mean uh, Valjean's approach and, and and agree with him fundamentally. And I think on some level, intuitively, I want to agree with him as well. But the more I think about it, I always come around to thinking he made the bad decision, which uh, is evidence of some cognitive dissonance in myself, because uh, I have a pretty deep sort of classically Judeo-Christian ethic ingrained in, in my uh, behavior and my thought patterns. But I also have a, a much, I'm by personality very open individual. So I'm not, um, I tend to consider new ideas very readily. I don't get much cognitive resistance when someone approaches me with some totally foreign idea. Uh, I really enjoy those explorations. Uh but so so in this case, I when I the more I think about it, the more I think of it was not it was not the right choice to make, um, and and I can justify it from a f- several different angles that way. But I do still have this intuition um, and this this sort of deeper sense of right and wrong that agrees with Valjean's decision. So it's a uh, it's a really fun conversation there around that. It wouldn't be a moral dilemma if there wasn't a tension. And if right. we couldn't see both sides, it's something that makes any human being really, aside from a psychopath, um, right. struggle with it. Uh, yeah. Pause, take pause, pause and go, and really gosh, this is a out. dilemma. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, and so forth. Yeah. Right. And I, I think a beautiful takeaway that I want to um, maybe leave us with on this particular discussion, although we could probably go a little bit deeper, and I'm happy to talk a little bit about your your more theological ideas around that too. But uh, a takeaway I, I want to make sure that we mention is that this entire ethical conundrum, this moral decision, is actually in many ways a decision between two good things, right? So had Valjean decided not to uh, turn himself in, he would have continued on in a trajectory that was incredible you know it was still transformative what he did was amazing uh the the way he was serving his town was excellent there there was so much so much good fruit to being born from his life because of who he was up at that point where he has to make the dis- this decision had he then turned himself in as as he does um that is also a, a righteous decision in some sense too and either way um, that was a, that is a turning point that he never would have been at had he not been transformed initially. And, and that's worth pointing out because I think a lot of Christians in particular, but a lot of people, uh, more conscientious people by personality trait get really down on themselves when they're faced with a decision and they're not sure what to do the right thing. Um, but they don't realize that actually they are making a decision like just the fact that they want desperately and are and are kept awake and are anxious over the fact that uh, that they want to do the right thing is an incredible testimony to the kind of character that they have and that's um, that's a beautiful thing when anyone can lose sleep over over a decision that in um, over a more a morality decision um, that's a good sign. Even if they, even if by their own weakness, they choose to do the thing that they think is less moral because they can't bring themselves to do the thing that's more right. Even in that instance, it's still a beautiful thing that there is that tension within, that there is that desire. Because I think that is the deep indicator that their overall direction, their overall trajectory in life is pointed in a positive direction. Like they are seeking to be moral. They are seeking to do good things. And I don't think you can go wrong with that so long as that tension is there. Um, Obviously, we don't want to make a pattern of, of taking the second best decision if that's what we end up consistently doing. But 
so long as that tension is strong, then, then I can't imagine someone straying too far, you know? Yeah. I think, um, I think there's a lot of good in what you say. Yeah. About wanting to, um, it's, it's always going to be a beneficial journey when you're trying to do the right thing. And all you can do in life is do the best that you can. Right. And be um, honest with yourself and with others. And that involves a willingness to change and to be wrong. It necessitates a willingness to change indeed. and be wrong. But it also um, means that you can be right and that you can improve and that you can learn and that you can do good. I think a lot of people are very good. There's, I know, psychological studies around why individuals can be so negative and harsh on themselves. And mm-hmm. I know I've had to work through this and still do. I say things to myself and hold myself to a standard that I don't to others. And I give uh, mercy and um, understanding and benefit of the doubt to others much more quickly than I do myself. Mm. And that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, um, it's a strange one. We have to allow ourselves to be uh, act- actors of good in the world. It's not like good is neutral and uh, wickedness or however you want to describe like bad moral decisions um, or cause of pain um, is, you know, ticks against you. So I can only do bad. I can't do good. That's neutral. Who, who says that? Where did that belief come from? No, we are forces of good in this world. Absolutely. And that can be a a place of growth and goodness. Absolutely. Right. And I think our propensity and, and maybe our hardness is is due to the fact that it's so much easier to tear stuff down than it is to, to build things. And so in many ways it takes, it's discouraging because it takes so much of a, a longer, a prolonged and intentional, effortful pursuit of goodness in order to see growth. Whereas, you know, one bad decision can tear stuff down so fast. And so we're hard on ourselves despite the fact of, uh, you know, a long pattern of, of good effort um, because because the negative effects of bad decisions can be so severe and so sudden and so dramatic, whereas the, the positive changes just generally aren't so. Well, but isn't the uh, event that happens with the bishop and right. Jean Valjean a counterexample to that? No, it is. That is. But it's also the result of uh, a life the bishop built. You know, like that mm-hmm. was a he would never have had the the saint-like morality that it took to to perform that action for Valjean uh, had he not lived his life up until that point consistently. I mean, I think that's that whole beginning story of, of establishing who he is as a character demonstrated this very sincere, humble satisfaction with his lot in life and his commitment to give everything else away. Um, and And it was, once again, this long period of effortful intentionality that allowed him in that one moment to do something rather extraordinary because I don't think anyone would disagree that that was an extraordinary act of kindness and goodness. Um, yeah. 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 That, um, uh, appears easy to him in the moment, but we're not actually given by Hugo and inside uh, too much. We are given an insight into his internal dialogue and feeling, but not, Tons, you are right. Um, it, it doesn't matter that, because one could, a cynic could argue right. that, oh, he's been a saint his whole life. So it was easy for him to do that, but I'm no saint. But I think you're saying, and I think you're right, that it doesn't matter. It was still a sacrifice to him, but it was something he was ready and willing and wanting mm-hmm. to do. And able and to it, do. then it makes it possible for all of us, perhaps. If we want to be committed to this vision of being um, self-sacrificing people like him, as you've well mm-hmm. described 
towards the beginning of this uh, podcast, um, mm-hmm. him constantly giving away these large checks. He's just giving it away. That's his choice. And he's doing that. Right. Um, that's within our power too. Mm-hmm. Um, we have these small choices and large choices that we can do to experience these transformations that we say that we want. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe it's a long, slow experience, but it's an experience I think we have access to hopefully, uh, on the whole. Yeah. I, I'm at a point right now where I'm not so convinced. I'm, I'm less convinced of the, uh, the, the actual societal value of an ethic of self-sacrifice on the whole. Um, and for, for a few different reasons, uh, it, to, to really get into it, I do have to kind of dig into some um, more more Ayn Rand sort of uh, philosophy, that kind of way of living. But Objectivism. Yeah, some, some more objectivist uh, thought process. But there's, um, and this, this book's just not a good, <laughs> not a good background for that because this is such a beautiful story <laughs> of like the best, the best way a Christian ethic might possibly ever turn out. Uh, and I think it's, it's contingent on the priest actually being a person of independent means or not independent, but like he's self-support, he's supported by his church and then him actually performing the function that a specific religious institution is designed to perform in the midst of a society as a whole. So he's a little bit of an external member of the society, like in a, in under most ways you look at it, he's not really a member of the society. Like as a clergyman, he's, he's in a, in a different position. Are you saying that all clergymen are inherently corrupt no. because the system God, is, no. I'm teasing a little <laughs> bit, but it does sound a little bit like that. <laughs> right. I'm not even trying to imply that. So I'm way okay. off base here. Okay. I'm just trying to, to say that the reason, um, he is able to live so selflessly and have it benefit people, um, is because, he, his actions are not dictated by society. They're not really even expected by society. He, he is living out of an altruism that is dependent on his position as a clergyman and his support that um, is dependent on, on the religious belief of the entire town, essentially, which is supporting him. Uh, and so it, there's, a, there's a reciprocation there that is um, dependent on him being outside and, and in many ways above the, the regular population. Whereas what, what's happening now, and, I, and I, it'll make more sense as I compare it to that, what I think is going on in society currently, um, right now and in, in a lot of the Ayn Rand stories, there is an ethic of self-sacrifice that is more better. It's more accurately described as like a, a social virtue kind of thing where um, everyone is obligated to take care of their neighbor, for example. Uh, there's this sense that we should all treat everyone, we should all love, it's a, it's a communist ideal of uh, one should love their brother as, uh, one should love their neighbor as much as their brother and the neighboring farm as much as their own farm. And like there's this sense of, of uh, obligated equity that everyone should uh, reach for, this ideal, this high ideal of brotherhood um but ultimately that's super destructive and it's it's a very challenging nuanced conversation in order to nail down exactly why that's so destructive Um, but we know just from the example of history that that doesn't work it doesn't play out well and so having the the religious structure as sort of a separate and morally ideal um, entity that that your lay person is not really even meant to try to attain to like they're not meant to uh, the, their highest aspiration 
isn't, I'm going to be a priest. No, maybe they've got one kid who goes off and is a priest and they're more of like a, a, a symbol, a religious symbol of, of an ideal that people admire uh, and reflect on themselves, but they're not um, as at, they are meant to just serve their purpose in the way they can as best they can. And not necessarily, it's not, it's not that same, there's not the same obligation there as the priest has, but the priest, because they're supported by the group are ob- like really obligated to take care of the group as if they would their own family. And in fact, they're giving up their family for the sake of taking care of uh, of the group. And that's it's like such a communist thing. Like if you, even the phrasing it that way, um, but it works in this instance because it actually is dependent on this one actually moral person um, being moral with his with his what he's been given. Now, you know, maybe there's something to be said for the fact that most of our stories uh, that include religious characters include religious characters who aren't actually moral. <laughs> um, and so there's there's some evidential value of that in in maybe questioning the validity of that system. Uh, and obviously it's less, well, it's even more questionable today for lots of other reasons, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, and I forget where I was going with that completely. I'll give one response while you, uh, maybe can yeah, regather your thoughts, thoughts but, um, uh, lots of content in there and good stuff. Um, I'll just say one thing and that's, uh, the key word here is system. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with you that you cannot command that someone freely give. That's the, that's a contradiction. You cannot right. ask. You can say give, but is uh, just look at the uh, the concept of a gift. Is that really a gift if I'm forced, or is it still a gift because I'm doing the benign action of handing something over, or uh, quote unquote for English, giving this right. thing to somebody, or is it a gift when I choose? out of my own choices and desires to give such a thing to somebody, whether it's my services or my goods. Um, communism doesn't work because, it, and I do believe it's an inherently evil uh, system because it takes away the dignity of the individual and it takes away their freedom. And it says you will give for our arbitrary or not so arbitrary reasons, but they're arbitrary because we say we, we privately say us in power what you can and cannot do it's an agency question exactly it does not elevate the uh, agency and dignity of the individual for the capacity to give and love now that does not mean that uh, therefore the uh, supposed opposite which is a capitalistic society is therefore the golden child and the perfect answer not in the least that's a whole nother subject but it is true that um communism doesn't work for uh, reasons because it takes away freedom yeah you can't mandate altruism it doesn't work and uh, uh, christians are persecuted under uh if, if communism is uh, has elements of uh, christian ethics supposedly but it doesn't why is it that so many communist uh, countries like to persecute christians that right. doesn't mean they're not persecuting other groups um we're seeing that today mm-hmm. um but it certainly means that why if why would Christians be under the chopping block? Right, and I think you really put your finger on the difference there. Uh, it has to do with uh, magnifying the sovereignty of the individual. And and like we were talking be- uh, before about agency being a key cornerstone of virtually any ethic, uh, I think it's, it's critical that uh, very, very rare is the circumstance where 
a moral decision could be made that harms someone else without their choosing to allow it. Um, and that's and that's a fine line there, but obviously communism tramples all over that because there is no way to get compliance on, on such a large system without enforcing it. And that's, you know, the enforced morality is, is a weak morality um, and, and likely to, to cause a lot of harm. That takes us right back to Javert, right? right. There's, a, there's another supposed Christian system, but that's the whole point. Is this really... Uh, Christian and Hugo's not trying to be an apologist here. He's no. just trying to problematize uh, his age and what it means to live um, yeah. in a merciful and loving way, which um, is the actual Christian way. And um, I don't know enough history about Victor Hugo himself on regards to where he was uh, in faith, but that's um, not necessarily important for the discussion here which is that uh hugo i do know uh went from being a a royalist of sorts um in favor of a more traditional um monarchy power system to uh a much more liberal understanding and this is part of what has to do with his exile and how many different versions of government structure and nuance that were being tried in this very volatile period in France's history in the first half of the 19th century. But he was surprised, I think, in how he found himself uh, espousing such um, emphasis upon the mer- mercy of the downtrodden, mercy for the poor, mercy for all, when there's a system that is beautifully epitomized in a character like Javert that says, sorry, we figured it out, we've gotten the details sorted and clearly justice will always be served because you do certain things and you don't do other things and the things that you don't do are punishable here and that's how everything's going to thrive and be happy right not so right right yeah hugo does a beautiful job of really pointing out who falls through the cracks and where and where they end up and um and in his picture here most of them end up dead (laughs) with the rare exception of people like jean valjean yeah, and I I think it is a high ideal to uh, aspire for in in our society to have a, a society that does a reasonably good job of um, taking care of those who fall through the cracks to the degree that we can, uh, without you know crippling them in other ways, which is you know that's a I think that's one of those things that really crosses political uh, crosses the line politically left and right, doesn't really matter who you are, people really intrinsically are compassionate generally and want to take care of those who are have gotten a lousy lot in life generally. Like um, some people feel that more strongly than others, but that's a, that's a common sentiment. And what's sad is we get so lost and caught up in the how um, and people are so convinced of their particular method of how that might best be done uh, that we, we do a lot of harm and avoid progress in that direction by bickering over that enough a lot in the political spectrum and then not doing anything about it on a personal level. Um, and, and maybe one of Hugo's uh, takeaways, or maybe one of our takeaways here is it's really the actions of individuals that actually preserve the lost, you know, especially in a, in a state where crime is punished so aggressively 
and where the the downtrodden um, sort of end up segregated no matter what because of the society. It is really only the actions of of courageous and and beneficent individuals who manage to preserve the dignity of the lost in many ways, whether it's like Jean Valjean does with Cosette um, or even how Marius treats Thénardier at the end, where he gives him some money despite you know all of his malicious scheming. Um, he gives them again and again opportunities to to redeem himself. And I think even you know Gavroche. Uh, uh, yeah, Gavroche. Gavroche. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think of him too. And his he has this scene where he's merciful to this other little kid. He takes up and turns out it's one of the Thénardier's kids. Um, but he sort of scoops him off off the street and it's just one little urchin to another, but he, he uh, takes care of him and he, he improves his lot. Um, uh, not a lot. He, he doesn't make his life much better, but it's better, you know, better to be sleeping in the cavity of an elephant um, than on the street in a cold winter night. And I think just from, from the, from no matter how bad your position or how lofty your position, uh, we can all do something to take care of those who are immediately in front of us who are clearly lost and clearly hurting and um, clearly need that that thing to help them, whatever that may be. Yeah, yeah, beautifully said. <laughs> yeah. Yep, so oh, an ode, ode to the miserable. You know, may they find mercy in, in us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And everybody, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. May you be moved to compassion more than I am. <laughs> just convicted. I just feel bad about how selfish I am all the time. But hey, you know, yeah. working on it. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us this week, Truth and Fiction. That was kind of a long one. It's a long story. Um, and I'm sure we could have gone much farther there. There's a whole lot more to be said. Uh, Catherine, thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. I uh, hope to get back on here again, maybe with some other book that you like, maybe one you don't. That would be cool, too. <laughs> I'd love to have you arguing with me about uh, how awful the the ethics are in some story. That'd be good. Oh, there you go. And uh, catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>